This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. This week, we are rebroadcasting our interview with the beloved Joanna Macy, initially released in January of 2015. In this conversation, Joanna gives us a new and transformative lens to approach despair, grief, and chronic dissatisfaction. We hope you enjoy this special Encore episode. radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today from Berkeley, California, we are joined by Joanna Macy, eco-philosopher, activist, scholar of Buddhism and systems theory, who has an international following thanks to 50 years in movements for civil rights, global justice, and ecological sanity. Her 12 books include Coming Back to Life, Widening Circles, a Memoir, World as Lover, and World as Self. She travels the world teaching her program for activist empowerment and healing from the psychological damage of civilization, entitled The Work That Reconnects. Hello. There you are. (laughs) There you are. Hi, Ayana. I am thrilled to be meeting you this way and in conversation with you. Well, it's an honor for me as well to share your voice in this way. 
The radio show was created out of a deep despair in my heart and needing to reach out to people like yourself for guidance. And I know there's a lot of other people that are in the same boat as I am. You show how significant it is and how productive it is to not be afraid of your despair and grief and outrage over what's happening. Mm. Instead of thinking of that as doom and gloom, closing your heart to it or thinking that it's some private pathology, you didn't close your eyes Mm. and you let it in. Uh, There's no more energy being devoted to protecting yourself from what's happening to the world. You open to it Mm. and look where it's taken you. I feel so grateful that I've been able to open myself up to the despair. You know, that's the most subversive thing we can do because the power holders, the whole late capitalism project would have us uh, distrust our feelings and privatize them, uh, that it's some personal craziness Mm. and that pave them over and that makes us very obedient Mm. and silent. And so it's easier to manage a population that is silent, depressed, isolated, and obedient. Mm. But you didn't buy into that for some blessed reason. You may not even know yourself. You didn't. You let yourself feel it. I don't know why. It's strange because I didn't grow up in a community that talked about these things or was maybe even consciously aware of what was happening and it was just something so loud for me and even when I didn't know how to talk about the tar sands or nuclear even when I didn't have that activist vocabulary I was shouting and I was pushing against this and, and you were feeling sick at heart yes and you didn't shut up about it. No, I, d- I didn't. Praise <laughs> be. You may not know even what it was that you are growing up or your ancestry that gave you that courage. Before I really stepped into this open-heartedness towards what's happening, I was constantly feeling this chronic dissatisfaction. And I was just feeling this heaviness of meaninglessness and emptiness and... It wasn't until I really opened up, you know, broke my heart open, cried, felt the deep darkness of what's going on, and then, you know, starting to be proactive. That's when I felt, wow, okay, this is enlivening. It's, (laughs) yeah, it's, I feel alive. (laughs) Yeah, and then you found that you also, that you weren't alone. You suddenly found that you had all these wonderful people to link arms with. We are not alone in this despair, and at the core of it all, the despair comes from this deep love that is undeniable, unexplainable. It's our birthright Mm. to feel it and live out of it, to let it pour through us for our world. And that's what I'm feeling with a lot of the young people today. They move me so. I feel like my generation is beginning to emerge from the paralysis of despair. I've always hesitated to use the word hope since it carries a sense of passivity or 
resigning your power. So I would distinguish what I'm feeling as a sense of calling, not based in hope, but in the certainty of this path and the need to rise to this occasion. Whether or not we will ever personally see the kind of change we dream about. There's nothing that could stop me from doing this work. And even through times of doubt and lack of results, I know I can always take in the beauty of the world every day and love it fiercely. And that's a great uh, economy, too, because it saves you from constantly taking Mm. your pulse either your spiritual pulse or your strategic activist pulse. Oh, how am I doing? And was this successful, that mm-hmm. successful? Constantly trying to gauge mm-hmm. uh, the <laughs> a look at what the outcome is. And just you just drop that because you can't tell. There are people who have done things and said things that have profoundly enriched and altered your life. And they're part of the compost that's nourishing your life, and they don't even know it. You don't go back to tell people. Sometimes they're not even alive anymore. Sometimes there are people that you've forgotten the name and that they've gone off, they live a place you can't reach them. So we absolutely are getting free from being dependent on uh, knowing the outcomes Mm. of what we're doing, Mm. and that is an incredible liberation. And what a privilege it is, isn't it? Gosh, absolutely. I think about that a lot, that so many people don't have the opportunity because they're faced with real issues of survival. That's right. You're so right. And we're so lucky that we have a little psychic space, a little physical space. Mm -hmm. We're not locked up. Mm -hmm. We're not cut off in some refugee camp. We're Mm -hmm. always to do a stand in line for a crust of bread or a piece of paper to get us out of there that we actually have. This means you have this radio show. We have this Skype technology. We don't know how long we'll have it, but for the moment we do and for the moment we can let our hearts sing with the sense of purpose we have in our love for life. That brings to mind the very first interview I recorded, which was with the ecology writer Stephanie Mills. And she said something that I haven't ever forgotten, which is cleaving to beauty is of great sustenance and we can all help a little beauty to continue. I'm grateful too for the teachers that tell us that Uh, We don't need to pick and choose, but we can be ready for everything. And you may know that I do translations of the poetry of Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, who wrote some of the most amazing short poems. And there's a poem where he says, uh, it's as if he, he imagines the sacred talking to us and saying, Beauty and terror keep going. Feeling is final. So there'll be terror as well as beauty. We're here when there's this turning that can happen. There's the great unraveling of living systems, and there's also the great turning toward a life-sustaining society. And 
We don't know how it's going to end, but we're here to face the unraveling and act for the great turning. And in that, we'll see beauty, but we'll also experience terror and grief. And we just let it all in. Let it all in. As he said, that's uh, just keep going because you're not going to let anything quell the joy you feel in being of use to life on earth. I'd like to read one passage from your book, Coming Back to Life. And it's really stuck in my mind. And it makes sense of that paralysis, that moment of stillness as you awaken to the fact that your pain is the pain of the world manifesting in us. Quote, The very distress that, when we hide it, seemed to separate us from other people, now uncovers our connective tissue. This realization, whether it comes in a flash of insight or a gradual dawning, is a turning point. We shift to a new way of seeing ourselves in relation to the world and a new way of understanding our power. Many metaphors come to mind for describing this shift. It is like the turning of the tide or the pause between breathing in and breathing out. As we allow the world's pain to flow in, it rearranges our internal structures. Then the outflow releases our gifts of response into the world. Or it is like a fulcrum, letting us shift the weight of our despair, turn it, and raise it into new understandings. The Chinese character for crisis is a combination of two forms. One means danger, the other opportunity. On this fulcrum, danger turns to opportunity, unquote. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. So could you speak about how pain helps transform us and unlocks our healing powers? For one thing, this has been known to us humans, maybe to other life forms as well, for thousands of years in every spiritual path, in every mythological structure, there is this recognition that the way to fulfillment is often through a dark and painful turning. Like the hero's journey, for the hero to become a hero and to discover, to engage in the great saving adventure of whatever she or he is about, there is first a descent where you feel almost powerless, you have to confront the monster. And you have to embrace the monster and that you break free of the restrictions that your culture has imposed on you in daring to love what is unlovable or what you've been told is unacceptable and to run the risks of being considered crazy or loony or weak or unpatriotic or too sensitive or too emotional or what have you and just open your eyes, your mind, your heart to what is. It's a declaration of allegiance to the truth of where you are. And it's at the same time, while so this has been part of our knowing for a long time and it seems particularly significant and necessary now in our facing our mainstream culture and the political economy of the industrial growth society or 
we could call it late stage capitalism that intensifies this oppressive nature of our culture and so for the power holders would have us not get acquainted with the power of our and the intensity of our outrage and the depths of our grief they would like us to feel that everything is just okay the way it is put a little smiley face wherever you can keep a stiff upper lip be obedient conform don't step out and uh, don't raise your head and so when you dare to accept these the inner turbulence which is really life itself knocking at the door feel me see me open up to me i am your world you become not only so personally liberated and find more energy and more vitality and more joy and the numbness and the anesthesia begin to wear off but you also become subversive dangerously subversive you are breaking free of the kind of deep oppression that our political culture can threaten us we can be threatened with so much with jail with isolation with torture the power holders in defense of corporate globalization are rolling out just about every scary device they can with genuine harm to keep us quiet to keep us obedient so i like to see i love to see in myself and in all the many people i've had the good fortune to work with in the work that reconnects how feeling their pain for the world builds a wonderful kind of gleeful courage of being allied with life and begin to act and feel that life is flowing through you All over the land Mother against daughter Father against son The whole thing Is getting out of hand But folks wouldn't have to suffer If there was more love
This system is set up for mandatory participation, with, you know, vanishingly few exceptions, the, the people who have gone money or fossil fuel free. But slave labor and environmental toxification are built into the structure of the economy, and without them as it stands, it wouldn't function. So here we are in this impossible place of never being able to live guilt-free, and this guilt is just another form of pain for the world. But how do we deal with this pain? Is there a way to move through it? Yeah, I just said it so beautifully that you can't be guilt-free in this. And so this can make you feel, oh, there's no clear enemy. But when we realize that we all belong together in the living body of Earth, and we can see that, that we're, as living systems, we participate in the not only the biosphere, the ecosphere, but we participate in the political and economic systems that we're born into and living in. So in a way, oh, you can say, damn it, I want to be purely on the side of good and not tainted in any way by my complicity. But this very difficult, if not totally impossible today, to live without interdependence with the reigning system. But the good news of that is that because you're part of it, you can also be part of its self-healing. Because the world actually can't be fixed from the outside, and you can't heal the world. But the world can only heal itself, and we are part of that. So we know that the drag of the habits that we've acquired we know the sloth and laziness that is are bred by our getting accustomed to the comforts. And, and so as we free ourselves, we are showing everybody, because everybody's complicit, and that there's no convenient enemy out there except that there are sort of institutionalized forms of the mistakes we make. By that I mean, well, in Buddhism, as which as you know is very important to me and been very helpful, the sources of suffering are seen to be not some evil principle, but they are simply human greed and human hatred and human confusion, delusion. So that's been ever so. We make mistakes when we're motivated by fear, hatred, and delusion. What's happening in our time with these technologies and market forces is that these great sources of suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion, have taken on uh, institutionalized and technologically assisted systems, forms. That's what we need to fight and separate from, these institutionalized forms. And therefore, that means that when you bump up against people who are working for the system, 
in corporations or government or military or police or Monsanto or what have you, then you realize they're not the enemy, that they're just in bondage to these organized forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. So you don't waste energy and risk separation by seeking to hate or defeat them. They're not the enemy. But what you do then, you recognize that you can help them see, you can, that you focus your energy on how you dismantle these forces that we've allowed to arise. Am I making any sense? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, in the work that reconnects, it's not in the books yet, but there's a practice that we do. It's on my website called Bowing to the Adversary. And that you, some of the people you have to oppose, the people you have to maybe do civil disobedience to stop what they're doing, that they're not the enemy. And so you make these, there are 10 different bows you make. You bow to them knowing that you who, who are destroying the natural world for your own profit, you have shown me how much I love the natural world. You have shown me how much I love the earth and its being. So I bow to you in gratitude. If it weren't for you, I, you have shown me how much I value justice and freedom. And so I bow to you. You teach not acting from short-sighted reactionary impulses. Because if we do succeed in knocking down the system we oppose, it will spring back up with a new twist or, you know, a new slogan or flag, but something equally problematic. And there's this thing called behavioral conditioning. The shift needs to be as deep as our psyche goes, to the roots of our cultural identities and our myths. We need to rejoin the river of creative life. So I'm wondering how we can approach simultaneously fixing our inner disconnects and engaging in effective struggles in the wider context? I think that they actually help each other. That's why I argue with people who seek a spiritual path that is characterized by tranquility and focusing just on your own emotional and spiritual uh, responses without engaging in the hurly-burly of uh, social change work. That shift in consciousness can actually be furthered and become more real for us in the course of taking risks and stepping out and speaking out. And you know why? It's because at the root of this shift that we're required to make now for life to go on, at the root of it, I think, and it comes both from science and spirituality, two revolutions, we're seeing that the earth is alive. It's a living system. Our political economy is treating the earth as a supply house and a sewer. Mm. And this is wrecking havoc with our own self-understanding and with our own peace of mind. It breaks our heart in a way 
far greater than we imagine to see our earth treated this way. But now, just as you and I are alive in this moment, both from science, quantum theory, chaos theory, system theory, and from spiritual traditions, from the indigenous people to the currents in every religion that are recognizing that our world is alive, the earth is alive, from it derives everything we know and have and are. And therefore, it is sacred to us. Oh my God, my world is alive. This planet is alive. That's what you were feeling today, Ayana, when you were walking out in the turning leaves. This is a living world. I'll do everything for it. And nothing I can do, nothing will ever befall me that will separate me. Mm. from this living world is my larger body it can pour its intelligence and its bliss through me Mm. when the paradigm of separateness and separate individuals fades away there's a tremendous weight lifted in a sense there's a pressure in our culture to be exceptional to be original in your ideas and in your expressions This may partially derive from the notion of human exceptionalism or national exceptionalism in certain cases. So, when we begin to see the world as a unified whole, personal success only makes sense if it serves a wider collective success, the thriving of a community or an ecosystem. You've invoked Arnie Nass, originator of the term deep ecology, and his call for cultural therapy to break out of the anthropocentrism. You are one of the leading advocates for deep ecology. So can you speak about Arnie Nass and how your work has dovetailed with his? Oh, yes. His coming into my life was, uh, his thought was very important to me. When I started this work, I thought it was just about freeing people from their negative emotions and so that they could be more effective. Uh, more effective activists. But then I found, to my surprise, that in so doing, uh, the people around me and I myself were feeling a shift in identification, shift to identifying with the earth itself, herself, himself. I don't know uh, what pronoun to use, but... uh, (laughs) Then I thought, oh, that's just like the Buddhist teaching of dependent co-arising, of radical interbeing. And then came uh, my acquaintance with deep ecology, and I thought, oh, goody, now I have a secular term for what I only had spiritual language before, that we are gaining access to our deep ecology that is our structural the universe is so structured as to involve our mutual belonging and our capacity to think and act together so Arnie Nass almost as soon as I discovered that I was with my buddy John Seed in Australia founder of the Rainforest information center and we invented the council of all beings where people could experience step aside from their 
human identification and speak for another life form. <laughs> and this was not losing their superiority. Actually, what almost everybody felt was taking off a girdle around you. Ah, oh, I don't have to just constantly be identified with my society-defined social role. I'm part of life. Oh, I can feel what it's like to be a wild goose or a slithering snake or a blade of grass. And that that's our birthright. Being human is just the last chapter in a journey that has shaped our minds and bodies. We remember that journey in our mother's womb, where we remember being fish and and amphibians going gills and tails. We do the whole uh, remembering of our origins there. And it's wonderful to be liberated from our human exceptionalism. And then real wisdom and a lot of ingenuity pops up. We must do a council of all beings together, Ayana, someday. My next question challenges me constantly. I experience the primal instinct of survival, of self-preservation, and the desire for creature comforts, but I've noticed a shift in my motivation lately. The age-old biological impulse towards the survival of our species has gone into overshoot, far past what would keep our population steady. And that's the great irony of our time. To increase or even just maintain our standards of living in the global north, we have to defile and deplete the whole of life. So one big challenge, as I see it, is to override this biological urge and override the habits of overconsumption with the much stronger forces of cultural evolution, which teaches us balance. Do you see this cultural therapy as just awakening in us this instinct for harmony? Or is it supplanting instinct? What are your thoughts on this? As I was saying just before, what struck me, oh, just a few years after we started, there's a shift in self-interest that occurs, a shift to the next systemic level that as perhaps our earliest ancestors felt, And as we get from indigenous teachings of native societies, 
as well as in other religions and spiritual paths. There's a shift from focusing on the separate self to feeling a just part of a larger body, a larger being, a larger system. You define yourself differently. The realm of your self-interest enlarges and expands uh, so that what happens to the rainforest of the Amazon basin, for example, strikes you with the same kind of concern or at least similar concern as to what's happening to your own lungs because you know these are the lungs of your larger body, the planet Earth. It's very easy to slip back Mm -hmm. continually into identification with your personal needs for comfort and security and approval and da-da-da. So you need constant practices. Mm. And John Seed used to remind me of this. He said, we've got to do these rituals and practices almost daily and very regularly at any rate, to counteract the pull of a hyper-individualized society that conditions us and has since birth toward acquisition and competition. And so we have, as you may have noticed in the work that reconnects, we follow a spiral of practices where we begin with gratitude. Once you Listen what the Haudenosaunee say, the, the Mohawks and Onondagas of central New York. Tell me they, these are the words that come before all else. We give greetings and thanks to the sun as it rises, to the trees that stand in their majesty and teachings, to the waters that strengthen us and the fish that clean the waters, etc. So just rehearsing or opening to your gratitude to be alive, the gratitude that I now am able to meet this extraordinary young woman, Ayana, and that I will meet her in person someday, fills me with such, oh, what a gift I've just been given. So gratitude also keeps us that self-interest extended wide, The other parts of the spiral are just what we talked about, about not being afraid of the suffering and then daring to look with new eyes in deep time and deep ecology, linking arms to move forward. There is a huge pull and fear. uh, That's why fear of scarcity and fear of danger can pull us back to just worrying about ourself or our family or our clan. It really helps to, to keep looking through the lens that widens. It helps you experience the widening circles of your life. You wrote, quote, When we reconnect with life by choosing to bear a pain for it, our mind retrieves its natural clarity, end quote. In this epic journey from the human-centered, exploitative society, to a society that honors the principles of inner being, of interconnection and coevolution, 
there are enormous feats of logistics and engineering. Transitioning to minimally consumptive societies with local and sustainable food and energy production, and a complete reworking of the hierarchical political systems and legal systems, and a dissolution of the police state and the military structures, and then shutting down the 400 nuclear reactors worldwide and dealing with the unimaginable amounts of nuclear waste. <laughs> just, just to name a few of the incredibly complex tasks ahead. So, I'm interested in the open-ended question of how to self-organize among the huge and growing body of concerned people globally, and how to decide where each of us fits into this project, and be able to shift our strategies as the situation evolves. I know it's a sweeping question that, of course, has no simple answer. Well, I could say you're right. It's a huge question. But the, there are a couple of basic reminders to oneself that really help. One is that of all these issues, yes, they are multiple, but they have one core, what, what we used to call problematique. There is one core mistake at the source of all of these wreckings of life on our planet. And uh, that is the notion that we are separate, mm -hmm. that we can hold aloof from the sufferings of others, and that we can, that we can find some private salvation. In a way, it doesn't matter that much which different issue you work on, whether you work on uh, domestic violence, the slave trade that's still existing in our private prison system, we can work to liberate ourselves from the tragedy of imagining that we're separate. So that means we can move from one to another. That also saves us from thinking that our issue is more important than other people's issues. Mm. And that has taken a big toll on activism in previous decades. They're all important. It's been very helpful to me, by the way, Ayana, that uh, we have separated, the, as we see these three dimensions of the transition to a life-sustaining society the great turning and they're holding actions where we slow down the destruction and they're the changing of the positive actions of changing the very way we do things and the third the shift in consciousness they all support each other and so we can slip free of being competitive about which of our strategies is most important and just let life move through us. And through it all, we must steer clear of the great mistake. The great mistake is to think that we can do it alone. Even looking at what's happening, we can't even take that in alone. The name of this game now is Link Arms and Do It Together. And that brings us enormous rewards. You found that. Mm -hmm. Look where you found your beloved. Mm -hmm. Me too. Mm -hmm. 
I had 56 years of a marriage where we were looking together at the challenges of our world and loving each other through the courage and ingenuity we saw in each other as we waded into one challenge after another. Mm. That's why the wedding ring that is still on my hand, on my finger, has three circles of a different kind of gold. One is me, one is my beloved, and the third circle that links the two is our world. We stand together not gazing riveted into each other's eyes, but we stand side by side looking out at our world, strengthening each other and loving each other through what we discover as we walk hand in hand into the great turning. That's true love. I know you didn't ask me that question, but it just came out. Oh, I, oh, I love that answer. Thank you so much for sharing that intimate insight. It is so amazing to join with others in the deep passions and convictions for life. And it's so fulfilling. It feels, it's the sweetest thing. It is. It is. It's so sweet. You're already in heaven. And so it makes this, you're doing just what you want. And you can't imagine being happier. And so, and you know, oh, you may not see the results of this action for another lifetime or two. So you're, you're free to engage without constantly uh, taking your pulse. Mm. <laughs> That's how effective you are. Mm. It can almost demean all that heartfelt work put into something that may not have the um, outward success that we so wished it had, but what else would we be doing during this time? What else could we potentially spend our time on other than uh, deeply loving this planet that is part of us? You, Ayana, you've been prepared for this moment by four and a half billion years of life on this planet. Your mind, your heart, your sensitivities, your body, uh, all awarenesses, that's, I didn't start with your birth and your particular line of ancestors. You're their gift to this time. Here for a moment Treasure the thought To feel the still air Pulling the strings of your heart You're given to dreaming With love on your mind I wish I could help you to find You're a girl with horizons So we to see 
Atop your high mountain Time is temporary Maybe I'll pass you Just say hello Or maybe I'd like to ask you about deep time. You do an exercise in which a participant expresses an activist issue from several vantage points. For instance, fracking. Um, first, they speak from their own heart, their own point of view. And then they change identity and speak as the opponent would speak. But you insist on it being a sincere attempt, not a caricature of the opponent. But you take it further then and have the person assume the role of non-human being that is affected by the issue. Perhaps a fish that were, you know, completely wiped out in the creek in Kentucky where fracking fluid spilled. And then the final voice is of the future human being, speaking from the distant future about the cascading effects through time of the actions we're taking now. So how has your study of deep time shaped what you consider to be important in the blink that is this life. I'm just imagining if every politician and corporate policymaker did this exercise before work in the morning. Oh, <laughs> oh what a different world that would be. Oh, <laughs> I just can't think of anything that would make me happier, that would be more wonderful. Well, what to say? I feel that a lot of the simple practices and the work that we connects, if they could just pause and do them at the cabinet level or in any decision-making body in government or corporate structures of that have so much power over our lives at this present moment. Yes, this is our birthright to feel these connections, all of them. And what's wonderful, you know, Ayana, is that this revelation that happens, this particular exercise I call widening circles, as you speak for first yourself, the adversary, the non-human, and the future one. Let me put it this way. I could decide to go and help people know how important it is to identify with these three other voices. And I could give a lecture about it. I could give a lecture about feeling nonviolent, identifying with your enemy, a lecture about deep ecology with the more than human, a lecture, a part of the lecture on deep time. But instead, people don't hear any sermonizing, not a word of it. All they do is speak from that perspective. And that teaches them. You follow me? Mm. It's in us already. We don't need to sermonize people, moralize at them. Let them speak. And then in that speaking, they find how big their heart really is. 
or their heart-mind, as I say. Because in Buddhism, that's your mind is located in the heart. I have to yeah. tell you something mm-hmm. that happened with that Earth Leadership cohort. We went and had the wonderful weekend together at Roe. And in the course of that, you know, we go around the spiral of the work that we connect. And each one is so powerful and subversive in a way. Even letting in gratitude for life is subversive to the consumer society that you are enough the way you are and don't need to buy everything. In that weekend, we did a very fierce piece of work around truth-telling about our pain for the world called the Truth Mandala, which you may have done or heard about. It was the following few days since there were some members of the Earth Leadership Cohort, young people that stayed on. Well, this Truth Mandala, where people enter the ritual circle and pick up an object and let it speak, let the fear speak, that's a stone, or let the grief speak, those are dead leaves, or let the outrage and anger speak, that's a thick stick, or let the emptiness and overwhelm speak, that's an empty bowl. So this has always been, I mean, this has been around for 25 years and it gets better and better. At any rate, this particular truth mandala was so fierce in the grief and even hopelessness that was being expressed, what people were saying that was just pouring out of all the feelings they'd been sitting on for years that just erupted. It was like a fierce wind blowing. I could feel it. And there were moments when I wanted to protect some of the younger people there. One, especially, she looks so young and so fragile, even though I knew she was a dynamite activist. I, for the first time in my life, as I wanted to go and put my hands over her ears and not be faced with so much total grimness of the outlook of what we've done to ourselves and to the earth. But, of course, I didn't. But I had <laughs> And she came in, too, just utterly devastated. All these terribly grievous things kept pain pouring out. And when it was over, she said, well, I wish I'd done that nine years ago. <laughs> so I feel wonderful. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah, to release it. Yeah, and, and we made it clear, too, that each of these dark emotions that so many people fear and flee have a tantric side or a flip side or a source. And that if the grief, the source of the grief is not craziness, but love. You mourn what you love. Mm. And that the source side of the anger is not hatred at all. It's passion for justice. And the source side of the fear is the courage that is there when you actually speak it. Because we're supposed to be so afraid of our fear, we can't even call attention to it. Mm. 
<laughs> I keep discovering the same thing. <laughs> and that we can trust our deep feelings about what's happening to the world. And that it can bring us strength and it can bring us each other. Wow. I can see that exercise being really instrumental, especially for people feeling the despair and who have grown cold-hearted and numb from serial defeats. You know, I've heard some really unsettling justifications for doing nothing, usually some variation of, you know, this is all part of Gaia's process. But if your intuition is awake, it's impossible to ignore the suffering of the earth. And a sense of certainty comes from being an active participant in the journey towards inner being. I love the word you certainty, just knowing, ah, this is who I really am or what I really am. This is the source of my life. 